The story of Galileo has always interested me. At various times throughout history, individuals have made observations about the world that challenge the status quo. Oftentimes, these visionaries have valuable, even world-altering contributions to make. But in their attempt to move humanity forward, they challenge individuals and institutions whose power is tied to the status quo. Galileo was no different. As a scientist and astronomer, Galileo spent time observing the universe. As he gained knowledge, experience, and prominence, he began to support the theory of heliocentrism, which had previously been put forth by Copernicus. Heliocentrism posits that the sun, not the earth, is at the center of our solar system. About a hundred years prior to Galileo, Copernicus had made groundbreaking observations that changed science forever, leading to the development of this theory, but he was censured. The theopolitical powers of the Catholic Church were invested in an earth-centric scientific model because it supported their claims to authority and power. So they silenced Copernicus. And about a hundred years later, they did the same to Galileo. After being put on trial by the church, he was forced to recant his writings and go on record saying that they were heresy. One of the definitions of heresy in the Merriam-Webster Dictionary is denial of a revealed truth by a baptized member of the Roman Catholic Church. An alternative definition is dissent or deviation from a dominant theory, opinion, or practice. As I've been questioning things, I find myself wondering whether I am denying revealed truth or simply deviating from dominant theory, opinion, and practice. And in some cases, I honestly don't know the answer. But not knowing doesn't mean the question shouldn't be asked. Copernicus said, to know that we know what we know, and to know that we do not know what we do not know, that is true knowledge. So join me on this path of exploring the in-between in a pursuit of knowledge. This is Uncertainty, a deconstruction story. I'm Jordan Slack. Revealed Truth. The Catholic Church identified anything that didn't align with, quote, revealed truth to be heresy. The people in power granted themselves unique insight that allowed them to determine what everyone else believed, because the truth had been revealed to them. While no one is being burnt at the stake or sentenced to life in house arrest like Galileo, the principles of the Catholic Church's approach to squashing heresy are not that far away. As I've really thought through the root of my questions and the hurt that I've sustained in the Church, I've tried to pinpoint the source. I've thought about theologies that I've been taught that have kept me in cycles of fear and shame, so much so that they've shaped my personality and caused great difficulty and pain. I've thought about how the machine of the Sunday morning service chewed me up and spit me out like so many who sacrificed their time and talents in the church. I've thought about the positions of racism and misogyny and Christian nationalism that have been supported with scripture throughout history and still to this day. I've thought about how the church has taught very harmful views of sexuality, ranging from purity culture to the dehumanization of the LGBTQIA community. I've thought about how abuse has taken place in the church, sexual, emotional, psychological, 
spiritual and how little accountability there is. All of these things play a role in this story. They are a source of many of my questions and hurt. And I will explore each of these topics in future episodes. But while these specific issues float to the top as problems, the foundational issues are much more general, deeper, and wider. Honestly, if I had to choose one thing that has caused the most issues in my life and has given the most profound cause for questioning, it is my understanding of authority and the way it has been wielded in the church. Pastors and churches and traditions within which I grew up delivered a framework for understanding the world and interacting with people and God, and I was taught that it was the way. This framework had issues and inconsistencies, but part of the belief system was to trust those in authority and not question people in power, namely pastors. I want to explore how I ingested these ideas over time through the lens of a few influential leaders who were key in forming my opinions about God, the Bible, the church, and my place in it. As I mentioned in the last episode, I was born into and raised in Sovereign Grace Ministries. To be more accurate, my parents were part of People of Destiny International, which was founded in 1982 and later became Sovereign Grace Ministries in 1998. Our family was very involved with church growing up. We were in services every week. My parents led small groups, my dad served on the worship team, my mom spoke at women's events at the church. A key component of the culture centered around one of its founders, C.J. Mahaney. I have several memories of C.J. I had seen him preach at various churches we attended over the years, at youth conferences, at young adult conferences, as well as several video sermons and podcasts. Something that always stood out to me was the passion with which C.J. spoke about the gospel. He would almost writhe in pain and joy when he discussed his past as a drug dealer and how God plucked him out of his life of sin and saved him. The exquisite joy that I heard in his voice, saw on his face as he spoke, saw in his mannerisms as he preached and sang, it was infectious. I spent the majority of my Christian life struggling to feel the love and passion for God that I thought I was supposed to feel. As a teenager, I knew the gospel and the Bible very well, and I had faith that everything that I was taught was true. I so wanted to be the Christian that I heard described in sermons and books. And as I look back, I see that, especially in my mid to late teenage years, one of my targets for what it meant to be a good Christian was CJ. I wanted to love Jesus so much that I cried spontaneously because the joy and freedom that I felt overtook me. But freedom and joy were not often the markers of my experience. When I was 10 years old, I saw a clip of a Lifetime movie in which a woman murdered her sister by drowning her in a swamp. It terrified me. I remember just crying when I got home. I couldn't even really express what I was feeling, but it was overwhelming. And as I look back, I don't think my brain was able to process the complexity and devastation of what I had seen. While there was so much emotion swirling in me, there was also a fear of death and hell. From a young age, my parents invested time with me and my siblings teaching us the Bible and the gospel. I was able to articulate the core tenets of what the gospel was as young as six or seven. 
I remember on several occasions my parents would ask me if I was ready to believe in Jesus. And my consistent response was, I'm not ready yet. I'm fascinated as I look back on my childhood self and see that this sentiment has been with me for so long. I felt that I needed to be ready for God before coming to Him for love and grace. So much so that I didn't want to officially commit to becoming a Christian until I was ready. While this sentiment would stay with me until much later, it was pushed back as I saw the shame on that woman's face as she killed her sister. The fear I felt pushed me to tell my parents that I wanted to become a Christian. I very clearly remember praying with my dad and taking my first communion in our living room. Not long after that, I was baptized at our church. Even though this is when I made my profession of faith and was baptized, I look back and see that my faith was based more in fear than anything else. I started staying with my parents in the sermon at my own request, but beyond that, nothing else changed. It wasn't until I was 13 that my spiritual life began to take shape. But this change was largely motivated once again by a fear that I wasn't actually saved and that I would die and end up going to hell because I messed up somehow. This pushed me to start taking being a Christian more seriously. I started to read the Bible more regularly. I started to have my conscience pricked and I began to see changes in my behavior. By the time I was 15, I was spending between one and two hours praying and reading the Bible every day. Many of these times were filled with peace and wholeness, for which I am grateful. But as I look back, the predominant feelings that drove me in this season were guilt and shame. I went through a period where I would force myself to apologize to people for everything, regardless of how insignificant it might have been. I even apologized to people for thoughts I had about them that were negative. I felt so guilty whenever I would do something I perceived as wrong, and I needed a way to assuage my conscience. The Sovereign Grace Manifesto was a book written by C.J. Mahaney called The Cross-Centered Life, which was later accompanied by a more practical application in his book, Living the Cross-Centered Life, both of which I read at least once. C.J., and therefore Sovereign Grace, loved the cross. He would often say that we have to keep the main thing the main thing. He encouraged an ordering of our lives around the cross. A notable byproduct of focusing on the cross was an associated focus on sin. In many ways, the gospel was reduced to, Jesus died to forgive me of my sins. And while I would have given you a different answer at the time, the net effect was that my sin was the focus of my Christian life. And my goal was to work hard to not be sinful. Of course, the message wasn't always delivered this bluntly. I was told the beauty of the cross was that all of my badness was covered, that no matter what I did, I would be forgiven. But all practical applications of this gospel were focused on not sinning or even having the appearance of sin. I remember during one youth event held at Covenant Life Church, Bob Coughlin, who is the head of Sovereign Grace Music and at the time was a pastor at CLC, along with another pastor, discussed the topic of music. Coughlin read scathing lyrics from Nickelback's song, Rockstar, stopping at one point because the song was too vulgar. The message was, you can't be a faithful Christian and listen to secular music. The other pastor who joined Coughlin that night said that 
while we might like certain styles of music, we shouldn't say broad statements like, I like country music, because people might hear that and assume that we like certain artists or songs in that genre that dishonor God with their lyrics. Instead, we should describe our musical preferences more generally. I like music with acoustic guitar, for example. As I say it out loud, this kind of advice sounds extreme and even ridiculous. But this was part of a culture that was hyper-focused on being, quote, holy and avoiding sin. It was driven by fear and shame. And unsurprisingly, this culture created in me great fear and shame. And while these messages are actually very anti-gospel, they were always bathed in language of grace and gospel. I always admired Mahaney's passion for the cross and sought to emulate it, but always found myself coming up short. I remember one day when I was 15 or 16, I found myself in a spiritual low place, emotionless and numb. No matter how much I read the Bible and prayed, my soul did not feel alive. So I chose to spend the day fasting. Looking back, I think that I was probably experiencing mild depression and needed a much different kind of healing. But I did not have a framework for this. Depression was considered a lack of faith, sin even, and Sovereign Grace leaders taught that everything we needed was in the Bible and in the church, a message that is still prevalent in many evangelical circles today. There was no need for counselors or therapists. In fact, going to professionals outside the church was considered sinful in some cases. So I did what I knew to do. I went out into the quiet, grassy area behind our apartment complex to sit in silence, to seek God. I also brought with me one of CJ's books, Christ Our Mediator. It was a small book, and I wanted to read the whole thing in my day of fasting and seek God in hopes of jump-starting a semblance of joy or passion in my relationship with him. This story is not an exception. Striving for the life and freedom that I was told should be mine in Christ by pastors and leaders in the church was my greatest desire, and I pursued it with vigor. And I pursued it in the ways that I was told to. While CJ was the first celebrity pastor that drew me in, he would not be the last. During this time period of extreme devotion and pursuit of God, a radical new preacher began making waves. I don't actually remember how I first came to know about Mark Driscoll, but once I learned of him, I soaked him up like a sponge. At the time, much of his teaching would have lined up with what I learned within Sovereign Grace, Reformed theology, complementarianism, etc. But his blend of rebellion and humor struck a chord with me. My dad was working evenings at the time, so my mom and I would often stream videos of his sermons instead of watching TV or movies. He was entertaining, but he was bold about being a Christian in a world that was increasingly anti-Christian. And from my perspective at the time, he stood for truth and was willing to fight for it. I listened to nearly every sermon that he preached between 2006 and 2012. Some series I listened to or watched multiple times. I bought and read several books that he wrote. I attended the Resurgence Conference virtually in 2013. I still remember reading emails from Mars Hill about lives changed through their ministry with tears in my eyes. Baptisms, lives completely turned around, a city being changed by a church within it. I wanted to be a part of an environment like this, electric change fueled by their charismatic presentations of the gospel. 
I think it's important to pause here and note something. I was a child, a child who wanted more than anything to be accepted by God, to have a life of impact, to experience freedom and joy. I looked to these leaders to give me the secrets to become like them, because my perception from afar was that they were men of God, leaders who were driven by their love for their Savior to ensure that everyone they came in contact with could also know Jesus and experience true life. So I not only was taught by their example, but looked to them for guidance on how to achieve the deepest desire of my heart, a fulfilled life following Jesus. Another influential figure in my life was John Piper, particularly when it came to the issue of desire. Piper's theory of Christian hedonism as a way to experience a fullness of joy in Christ, regardless of circumstances, was very attractive to me. I had copies of Don't Waste Your Life, Future Grace, A Hunger for God, among others, but really started to dig into Piper's sermon archive when I was going to college. One summer, I worked for a painter and found myself with lots of time working alone, remodeling houses, and I spent hours and hours listening to Piper's sermons. I still hear his voice and perspective when I read certain passages of scripture, particularly in the book of John. Piper, like CJ, expressed a passion for Jesus that was hard to describe. It was almost as if he couldn't contain the joy in life that knowing and believing the gospel created in him. I want to pause again here and say that these men who were in positions of power and influence changed the course of my life. They guided my decisions and choices, and their actions and words provided a roadmap that I was looking for. And I ate it up. I wanted to hear everything they had to say, and I wanted to do it. They told me that I needed to read the Bible, to pray, to have faith, to abstain from sin. And I did. I want to clarify what I mean when I say I lacked a joy or passion for God. I had an extreme commitment to the Bible and the church. I didn't have big hidden sins in my life. I was doing, quote, all the right things. But my spiritual life was marked more by numbness and emptiness than freedom or life. And this dichotomy was frustrating. It was the topic of daily prayer for me. It was the reason that I worked so hard. In retrospect, the reason that I lacked this joy and passion was because I was not truly taught who Jesus was or who I was in him. While the gospel was always the central message in word, the directive was usually much more works-oriented and moralistic. It was about the hard work of being a holy person. Part of what I mean when I say deconstruction is the tearing down of the mental institutions created in my mind by men in power who through their influence and charisma convinced me that all I needed to do to be a good Christian was follow them. Whether that was their explicit intent is not my place to say, but that is the message that I received. Part of my deconstruction process is disentangling the false teachings that I received about Jesus and myself and the world to understand what is really true, not just what I was told was true. This has truly been healing for my heart and my perspective, but it has also been extremely uncomfortable. I was given a handbook that was supposed to tell me exactly what I needed to do 
to be the Christian I was supposed to be. And I was told that if I did everything in the handbook, I would achieve everything that I desired. And for years, I followed that handbook. As a teenager, I had more spiritual and intellectual commitment to knowing and following God than many established leaders in the Christian church today. I held nothing back, and I ended up with a lot of head knowledge, but along with that came a lot of confusion and frustration. I lacked the life that I longed for, and I spent years feeling so numb despite doing what I was quote-unquote supposed to do. While I do think there are sinister forces at work in the American evangelical church, I also acknowledge that nothing is all good or all bad. As I said in the first episode, my life has been really great from a macro perspective. And while I have a lot of wrong thinking to disentangle and a lot of hurt to heal, I've learned and experienced a lot of really good things. A great example of this is my relationship with my wife, Jen. Jen and I met when I was 13 and she was 14. I don't think either of us would describe our meeting as a love-at-first-sight experience. She was one of several teenagers who came to greet me on our first day attending the church that her dad pastored, and we just spent years being friends. But as soon as the age of 15, I began to be interested in her, an interest that would only grow in the following years, which brings me to another key spiritual influence in my life. I had heard about Josh Harris from a young age. He was spoken about with respect and admiration as a young man who had great influence. Like Harris, I had been homeschooled my entire life, and seeing someone with a similar background do something as big as what he did made me think I could too someday. In 2008, my family moved to Gaithersburg, Maryland, where my dad attended the Sovereign Grace Ministries Pastors College as a part of his path to becoming a pastor. This was a one-year process that served as a distilled seminary program with a focus on Sovereign Grace's values and vision. During that year, my family attended Covenant Life Church, the mothership of Sovereign Grace, and the headquarters of the network. C.J. Mahaney had been the pastor of CLC for several years, but had stepped down to focus on being president of SGM. So during the year that we spent in Maryland, Josh Harris was the lead pastor. As I look back, the timing of all these circumstances is fascinating, to say the least. As I began to have feelings for Jen, I found myself wanting to handle things correctly. I didn't want to make my feelings known until I was ready to commit to a relationship that would likely end in marriage. So I took my desires, and dare I say frustration, to God. I talked to my parents, who gave me great advice. But I also looked to people like Josh Harris for direction. I remember looking at and reading snippets of I Kiss Dating Goodbye in the Covenant Life Church bookstore on multiple occasions. If I couldn't be in a relationship, I at least wanted to invest my time in preparing for the day that I could. Over the following years, I would read I Kiss Dating Goodbye twice. I read the sequel, Boy Meets Girl. I read Sex is Not the Problem, Lust Is, and I read it again when it was rebranded as Not Even a Hint. And as I had been taught, I took these books to hold truths that I needed to emulate if I was going to achieve the promises they gave. Not only did I believe them, but I lived them out. Because I was homeschooled, I was able to start college early, and I did so with the intent of getting a good job so I could provide for a family. 
I waited until I was 18 to ask Jen's dad if he would approve of me courting her. For those who might not know, courting is a relationship framework that is heavily focused on only engaging in romantic relationships with the intent of marriage and emphasizes heavy involvement of parents as authorities in the relationship. It is a key tenet of purity culture and a primary focus of Harris's books. Once we had approval from her parents, the relationship went from friendship to courtship. Especially at first, we had very guarded experiences, often where one of us would go have dinner with the other's family. We didn't hold hands until after six months of dating. We didn't kiss until we dated for a year. And we didn't have sex before marriage. We followed the books and we followed them well. Nearly 10 years later, I see a lot of damage that Josh Harris did to me through his books and teachings. Things that I'm still working through. At the same time, I'm extremely blessed. Jen and I have a deep friendship and a strong marriage. We truly love each other and we have from the beginning. While messages of courtship and purity culture often push people to get married before they should, in many cases to people they shouldn't marry, that is not my story. While the framework was not healthy, it wasn't the reason that I pursued Jen. I loved her so much, and I would have done whatever it took to be with her for the rest of my life. So when I say I can see good among the bad, I'm in earnest. One thing that I do see, however, is a pattern. C.J. Mahaney, Mark Driscoll, John Piper, Josh Harris. These were all esteemed leaders in my church culture growing up. I listened to their sermons, I read their books, I revered them. I saw them as a separate breed of super-Christian, and I wanted to be like them, so I believed everything that they said. All of these men offered me hope and direction. I believed what they said to be the truth of God, and they taught me sometimes implicitly, sometimes explicitly, that my own instincts couldn't or shouldn't be trusted and ultimately they all failed me. Let me be clear, no one is perfect, and we should certainly not expect our leaders to be without fault. At the same time, I think these men all represent a problem within the institution of church in America today. They all had large churches with extended audiences in the tens or hundreds of thousands via books, conferences, podcasts, and sermons via the internet. And in their authority, they taught me a message about God and about myself that was not accurate and has laid extensive groundwork for shame that has created a lot of pain and stolen a lot of joy and freedom. Something that I think bears mentioning is that these men all built their theology on a critical foundational truth, biblical inerrancy. I intend to explore the questions that I'm going through on this topic in a future episode, but I think it's critical to understand the ways in which this ideology played into the foundation of authority that these men had and still have. Saying that the Bible is a clearly understood and infallible book allows leaders in the church to use their own interpretation to guide and create the opinions and perspectives of their followers and ensure adherence to their espoused beliefs. If anyone disagrees with them, they're effectively disagreeing with God. This squashes any room for disagreement and is fertile ground for spiritual abuse. 
It hearkens to the way that the Catholic Church expressed their access to revealed truth as their means to control the beliefs of everyone under their purview, even when they were dead wrong. All of the leaders mentioned above, and countless others, today and throughout history, have expressed and defended very damaging beliefs with their interpretation of the Bible. As I look back at the wrong teaching that I've received and the repercussions that it has had on my life, I find myself grieved, even angry, but also humbled. I was in close proximity to people who are subjected to much worse by the same men and the systems they created. I've heard many stories of the damage that has been done, and I fully acknowledge that the pain I have experienced pales in comparison to what many have endured. Add to this my position as a straight white guy, I know that the damaging forces of racism and misogyny and homophobia have passed me by completely. If you are listening to this and have been wounded in these ways in or by the church, I am so sorry. This is not of Jesus. And while I cannot ever fully understand what you've gone through, I feel the pain with you and hope that you are able to truly find healing. To place trust in someone who says they love you and want to bring you a truth that will set you free and give you a foundation that cannot be shaken, only to see that foundation crack and crumble, can be a truly damaging experience. I'm grateful that I've come to a place where I can see that there are things that I've been taught, things that I've believed that are untrue and led to harm. But the more I've seen, the more it has opened the door to questions about what else was incorrect. What is true? Frankly, I don't know, but I'm on a journey to learn more. And to quote Galileo, all truths are easy to understand once they are discovered. The point is to discover them.